We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. In the acknowledgement section for her new book, Taking Back My Power, Georgia Harrison thanks, among others, the Essex Police, Sir Keir Starmer, BBC journalist Laura Koonsberg, and reality TV star James Argent. The wide range of names mentioned bespeaks the extraordinary and challenging journey she has been on. After leaving school at 16 with undiagnosed ADHD, Harrison became an executive PA in the city. By the time she was 19, she was on The Only Way as Essex. By 21, she was entering the Love Island Villa as a bombshell in season three. In 2018, when she was 23, she met Stephen Bear while on another reality TV show called The Challenge and began to date him. Bear would end up betraying her with devastating consequences. In 2020, He shared intimate video footage of her online, filmed on his own CCTV cameras, without her consent. He posted it onto his OnlyFans page, charging viewers for access. From there, it went viral. But although Bear had stolen her agency, Harrison refused to give him her dignity. She pressed charges. It took two years to bring the case to court, In March, Bear was jailed for 21 months, required to sign the sex offenders register and ordered to pay Harrison over £200,000, the highest ever sum awarded in an image abuse case. Harrison went on to campaign successfully for a change in the law to help other victims. Now, in her new book, Taking Back My Power, she tells the story of how she fought for justice for herself and how she continues to fight for justice for others. This is not a sad story, Harrison writes. It's a story about the power of hope. 
Georgia Harrison, welcome to How to Fail. Thank you. What a beautiful introduction. Well, thank you for everything that you have done for survivors like yourself. It must have taken an enormous amount of courage, and we will go into more detail on that. But I wanted to ask you about that hope that you write about in the book. How difficult has it been to hold on to that hope? It has been really difficult, but at the same time, it's almost something that was naturally there. Like, I've always been someone that's quite spiritual, and I always believe that you can look out for signs and, like, happenings from the universe to sort of give you a message to let you know that you're supported. And I just feel like even through, like, the toughest of times during this whole process, I just always had this underlying faith and belief in, like, karma and the law of the universe and that sort of everything happens for a reason and if I just stayed strong and like held my faith everything eventually was going to turn around and one day make sense and definitely that's the stage that we're at now. (laughs) Do you think that in a way it's part of your purpose to fight this fight that this is the reason it happened? Yeah I think at first I used to think like why has this happened to me like And I would, like, go through all of the steps and, like, wonder if I deserved it to happen. I think that's just a natural way of thinking. But when I look at it in a bigger picture now, when I I look at the statistics of change and how many more people are now contacting image-based sexual abuse charities, how many more people are contacting the police for help, and just how widely spoken about my case has been, I genuinely look at it in a way as if it hadn't happened to me, it probably would have gone on to affect hundreds more people. But I feel like by it happening to me, it not only opened a conversation to help prevent it happening to others, but it's also made a change in the law that was so greatly needed. And if one person has to go through a bit of a struggle and pain and trauma to help change society and help protect so many people and the younger generation who, my God, need it right now, then maybe that was my purpose, yeah. Two years to get to trial and the verdict was delivered on your 28th birthday. Yeah. Were there moments during those two years where you just thought, this is too hard, I can't see it through? Yeah, I think like some of the hardest parts was he was very, very vocal on social media and he was doing a lot to sort of discredit me. And I think the hardest thing was like not being able to retaliate or respond or stick up to myself. And I think sometimes along the journey especially when the court case was getting moved and stuff like that I would think like have I made the right decision here like have I made the right decision if I didn't do this I could have just gone to the papers by now I could have done something on my social media I could have tried to defend myself just vocally and in that way maybe like I'd still be working with brands and I wouldn't be in such a tough position and I did wonder if I made the right choice at times or if like I was going to go through all of that and still potentially lose because obviously the conviction rates were so low but I just stayed strong and I've got such a good family support unit around me and it's weird like when something happens to you you know you're angry and you're upset or whatever but when something happens to a family member I think like my mum for instance she just felt so passionately about me being strong and carrying on through and my friends they were just like there's no way like you're ever letting him get away with this like you have to just hold tight and I think luckily because I had them I managed to stay strong throughout Love your mum, by the way, because I watched that documentary as well as reading your book. I watched the documentary on ITV 
And she is just a tower of strength. And you have a very special relationship. Yeah. Because you're an only child, is that right? So I've got three brothers and sisters, but they're my half brothers and sisters. And the oldest one's 10 years younger than me. So I'm like an only child and a sibling. Yes. Weirdly. And I I imagine that makes your relationship with your mum really special and unique and close. Yeah. I'm her only daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she seems amazing. (laughs) Shout out to Georgia's mum. Yeah. I want to talk to you a bit about impact the impact that this image-based sexual abuse has had on you. You have compared recovery from it to grieving. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Immediately when you first find out, you're obviously devastated. But then I think you think that you've processed it and you think everything's okay. And then suddenly you'll just come over in huge waves of like upset and like feelings of like, you know, I think sometimes you blame yourself and you also look at yourself as slightly less valued as an individual because that's happened to you and it is just like grief because you know like when you lose someone you think I'm okay today I'm going to get up I'm going to go out I'm going to be fine and then suddenly something happens and it really just triggers you and you just completely and utterly break down and like you'll have days where you just want to lay in bed for like two days just to like it's almost like grieving a former version of yourself because once you've gone through image-based sexual abuse you aren't the same version of yourself your innocence gets taken away in many ways. Mm. Do you mind if I ask you, for anyone who doesn't know the facts of the story, how it happened? So basically, me and him hadn't been speaking for a long time. I hadn't spoke to him for over a year because he'd actually really disrespected me to the point where, you know, most people probably wouldn't ever speak to that individual again. But we had a lot of history and he lived opposite me. And we opened a conversation during the evening about maybe meeting up one night And then we didn't end up meeting and it went on to the next morning and he said, why don't you just come over for a cup of tea? Like, what's the worst that can happen? So I ended up going over there for a cup of tea and me and him were getting on really well. Like, it was just like old times. And I think any girl can sort of relate. Like, when you're with someone that you've been with in the past, sometimes it can just feel natural and it flows so easily, even though you know it's probably not great to be there. And he basically said, like, would I come with him to get his car cleaned? And then after he got the car cleaned, just drove straight to a restaurant. I was like, right, we're going for lunch. But I was in my gym stuff and I wasn't really, like, prepared. And I didn't really sign up for that because I didn't want to lose my sense of, like, self-control by drinking with him. And I knew what it was going to lead to, but still did it, (laughs) as you do. And, yeah, so we ended up going for lunch. We ended up drinking quite a lot. We went back to his house. And then he sort of said, oh, do you want to go play cards outside on the table in the garden? And me and him have previously filmed together a TV show in Namibia where we lived there for like eight weeks. And we used to play this card game all the time. So it was quite a nostalgic thing for him to suggest and like something I thought was quite sweet. And the cards were already placed on the garden table outside. So as soon as we started playing cards, he sort of insinuated that we have sexual intercourse, just like by his actions or whatever. And... You know, we then went on to have consensual intercourse. He's someone I've sat with before. And, you know, to me, it wasn't a big deal. And although we were in a garden, it was a private garden. So, you know, a bit risque for me, to be honest, to be having sex in a garden. But when in Rome, yeah, so we had sex for about 20 minutes. And it was in the garden and in his kitchen. And he was sort of like manoeuvring me in different positions across the garden and the kitchen. And to be honest, it was better than usual and more dramatic. But, you know, you're not thinking during the time of having sex. And after 
I think it had been about like 40 minutes, something like that. He was like, oh, babe, I've just realised I've got CCTV cameras in the garden and it might have got a bit of us having sex. And I'm like, you know, if you're having sex in front of a camera that you own, do you know what I mean? Don't act like you didn't mean for that to happen. I was like, I need to see it. And that's when he went on to pull it up on the telly. And like, we didn't watch the whole thing, but he went back. He went back and you could see that the cameras were even like night vision. There was like eight different screens. So he scrolled through the nighttime footage. But like, even that was like, you know, I don't know how many people he has around that house who go into his garden. He has parties there all the time. Like, I don't think anyone was aware at any time around his home that he was, they were being filmed. And yeah, it just sickened me a bit. And then he went forward to the daytime and then basically showed me it and I was still drunk. And like, you know, at first I, I was upset, but I wasn't in fear. I felt like he'd done it for himself. Like I didn't for a second think. I thought it was bad, but I didn't ever think that he was going to do it to go on to put it onto like porn channels or to share it. Because at this stage, he still had quite a successful career in television. He was going somewhere, to be honest. Like he was more famous than me. He was someone I sort of saw as, you would take the mick out of women, but you wouldn't break the law in that mm. sort of a way. And he also wasn't a porn star at the time. Like, he wasn't on OnlyFans. He wasn't doing any of the stuff that he then went on to do. So I just didn't think it was going to go any further than that. And I warned him that, you know, if it did, I would go to the police. And I explained to him that it is revenge porn. It's like a conversation we went on to have later that evening when he, I basically saw him send it to someone later that evening. And that's when I was like, I grabbed his phone. I was like, what you've done so serious. Like, you need to understand the implications of what will happen, not only to me, but to you, if this goes any further. And I really did feel like he understood. But what I realised now is I wasn't dealing with a normal human being. Mm -hmm. Like, I really don't think he's mentally all there. I think he's a sociopath, to be honest. Good for you. For having the yeah. presence of mind say that to him yeah. then and there. Yeah. And what happened subsequently is that it was shared with lots of people. Then he did put it on OnlyFans. Then you appealed to your Instagram followers yeah. because you knew that it was happening, but you needed evidence. And you painstakingly built up this case. Then it gets a trial. And the reason I'm asking you about this, and I'm very aware that it's so sensitive. And yeah. if at any point you want to stop and move on, we absolutely yes. can. But because we're talking in a particular context where allegations have been made against Russell Brand and there's a lot spoken about how difficult it is for survivors of sexual abuse and sexual assault to be able to tell their stories mm. and to be able to have faith in the system because often when it gets to trial, and it's very rare that it does get to trial, you are confronted with so much triggering stuff that you then have to trawl through mm -hmm. and you had a similar experience didn't you what was the trial like what were they asking you to do I mean I think one of the hardest things I think there was like a decision made that the video wouldn't be shown in court which was obviously good for me because I didn't want to have to go through that but like they sort of brought me in and there was an evidence folder in front of me and then all of the jury had the same folder along with the judge and the barristers and they would be like, go to like page four, for instance, and I would have to go to page four and it would be a picture of me having like sexual intercourse with him. They would have to say, you know, can you confirm that this is you? And I'd be like, I confirm this is me. Then you'd have to turn the next page and it would be like another shot and another shot and another shot of all different times of me literally having sex when I genuinely thought that I was in a private space and no one could see me. And I'm now having to go through these photos with members of the public that have been like randomly picked by the government 
And it was really, really hard and it was really embarrassing and it made me feel like really ashamed of myself. But I know like I shouldn't feel like that, but that's just like a natural, that's the feeling that arose at the time. Although my conscious mind knows that I don't need to feel like that. But at the same time, if that's what you have to do to get a conviction, that's what you have to do. But I'm quite a confident individual and like I've got a previous experience of public speaking and I've been exposed to like having to do filming and stuff like that. So if someone like me found that really, really hard, which I did and really like it did make me feel like I'd done something wrong. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what it feels like to another woman who potentially is like shy, who's an introvert, who isn't used to going out and speaking to big rooms or big crowds like it must be so so hard because I found it hard myself do you have trust issues now I think so yeah I I think so yeah I think I do yeah how has conducting any relationship been in the aftermath it's been really hard like I did have one relationship since it happening which in a way was like a, a big big support to me But, like, actually, at the end of our relationship, one of the things he said when we were splitting up was, like, who would want to be of you anyway? You've been all over the internet. And I think that was, like, really, really hard for me to hear. Like, firstly, from someone who'd made me rebuild my trust. But secondly, that's, like, my biggest fear, that, like, men are now going to be concerned about being with me in the future because this is something that could arise, you know, especially if you go on to have a family with me. It's something that could come up in the future with our children and it does worry me that like people don't value me the same because of it and comments like that just sent me like really I didn't get out of my bed for like two, cried my bed for like two days like, if you ask my mum I'm so sorry yeah I also want to talk about your book yeah. which is out today yeah 26th of October and because you also reveal it, it's not just about this although this is a massive part of it and I found it completely fascinating to read about it from your perspective it's also got a lot of wider subjects and one of the things that you write about is the loss that you experienced Mm. over the last few years both your best friend and your on-off boyfriend within seven months of each other I'm so sorry again that you went through that and I wonder if I could ask you a bit about how you've coped like how what have you learned about loss I've just learned that like you have to really dig deep and really just empower resilience when you come across something like that because it was just like the hardest feeling in the world and I think if you don't have a good support system around you when really bad things do happen then there's just no way that you're going to get through it It, it's all about getting through those first few weeks and first few months because time absolutely heals any sort of a loss and it always will but when you first go through something that painful your rational mind just completely and utterly dissipates and it's like you don't know what to think like the chemicals in your brain completely change your physical appearance changes everything just falls apart and you've got to really just be strong and have faith that things are going to get better and I think once I got through the first loss I knew the second time that I had the ability to do it again but I think the first time I was just like how am I ever going to carry on through this I read a lot about spiritual awakenings and I genuinely think that is what I had and they say that like one of the stages of a spiritual awakening is just everything completely and utterly falls apart and you can go through some really severe losses and life changes and then everything starts to gradually change and get better after that 
And I have to hold on to that faith because I think at first, like my life's so good at the moment and I feel so on track and I feel in such a good place. And when everything started getting better again at first, I had a really intense fear that something bad was going to happen because I'd gone through consecutive losses in such a short period of time. I found it hard to embrace being happy again. Yeah, Um, I guess it shakes your faith in the world because the normal rules don't apply. Yeah, and just as everything started to work out every time, I just got put back on my ass, and I was like, what's going to happen? Like, once I finally rebuilt again after everything, I was like, what's coming next? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I think? I think your 20s have been sent to you to break you down and build you back up and make you this most extraordinary, evolved, resilient version of yourself. And your 30s... You're going to nail them. (laughs) You're going to have an amazing time in your 30s. And anything like that in life gives you such a strong feeling of compassion for other individuals. And I think that's one thing you can take from if you have had a bit of a hard life, if anyone listening has gone through tough times. Like, I bet now, like, when you look at other people and they're, like, lashing out or they're angry or sad or they're acting in a way that they shouldn't really be socially, you can look at them and have such strong compassion because when you've gone through all of those emotions yourself and you've felt the lowest of the low, you can really see how and why other human beings act the way they do I think do you have compassion for Stephen Burr yeah I do yeah I do I think he's a really really lost soul and I think his family should have got him help a long time ago and he wouldn't be where he is now if they took their relevant steps to take him to his GP and take him quite frankly to a mental institution I think are you scared about him being released weirdly like I feel since I've moved back to my flat in Loughton which is where we both used to live and like for the first time in a long time like I walked down the street without any fear and it's not that I ever feared he would attack me I just fear his presence in general like him driving past having to see him but I don't fear that he will try and do anything to hurt me in general if anything I think I just worry for his own mental health and safety I don't know I don't know what he's going to do with his life now because he's just gone so far beyond helping Let's get on to your first failure. Your first failure is not taking the time to understand your ADHD sooner. Yeah. So take us back to young Georgia, who is at school, her early teenage years. Did you have issues focusing? Was that how your ADHD manifested itself? Although you didn't have the label for it then. I mean, issues is an understatement. (laughs) All of the teachers always said I was so intelligent. Like, especially at a younger age, I would be in the top sets for everything always set to get like A's and A stars but my focus was just all over the place I literally just could not concentrate unless I really really decided I wanted to I just couldn't and I was always just a class clown I was always a joker I was always speaking when I shouldn't always interrupting and like I was really demonized for that as a child you know I was really like told that I was just a bad kid and I was just naughty and you know that was the word but like when I look back now and and I still do it now in certain social situations it isn't that I'm naughty it isn't that I'm being rude it's that my ADHD and my brain is just wired slightly differently that I don't feel to myself in certain social situations and I might speak when I shouldn't or I might trail off halfway through and talk about something that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're saying but that isn't because I'm intentionally trying to disturb anyone or interrupt anyone it's literally just part of ADHD. So what was your journey to an ADHD diagnosis? 
it wasn't until just after lockdown and I think like I was just struggling so hard to organize my life it was like I would start one task and then halfway through I'd go into another and another and another and everything was just always halfway done and I was like I just can't cope with it anymore like it's definitely not normal and I think ADHD was starting to get spoken about a lot more so it was a bit like yeah like I've always said I probably got it but let's just go see someone and have a conversation about it and I went to see a psychiatrist who said I did have ADHD and at first I went on medication for it which I did find really helpful I would get quite a lot done on it but I just felt like I'd had like 50 cups of coffee all the time and I think for some people it's good for them but for me I ended up coming off of the medication and then educating myself on what I can do like holistically just to deal with it and it's just really little things like having ADHD it's like you've got a second mind that you have to keep busy there's like a kid in your head and sometimes you just got to throw him a rubber ball and I find like for instance if I want to clean up everything in my house if I put on a podcast or I put on music or just put in work music or even ADHD music on YouTube if I then have that on I will concentrate and I will just do everything that I need to do because my brain's being kept entertained with what it's listening to and also doing the task at hand it doesn't have space to be distracted by anything else and it's so weird how much that small tool has really helped me like implement getting tasks done in my day-to-day life and then meditation as well has really really helped me so when you say that it was a failure in terms of you wishing you'd understood it sooner what do you mean by that how do you think it would have changed I think if I'd been diagnosed with it from a young age then I could have got help with like understanding why I act the way I act. And then I probably could have been given tools to implement being a bit better in class or, you know, maybe the school could have given me opportunities to work slightly differently because my brain was wired differently to other children. There was probably things that I could have done that would have helped me concentrate more, maybe even at times just being in a separate room completely or just anything to understand it because instead of like working with myself working on myself and working on ways to become a better version of myself I felt like there was something wrong with me and I felt like I was a bad person and you know that I didn't really understand why I made so many mistakes all the time why was I always losing things why was I always forgetting things it was like I sort of felt like I was bad compared to other children when really I wasn't I just was wired differently Do you think you would have stayed on at school? I don't know. I don't know. Because I find it interesting what you're saying, and you're clearly such an intelligent person, and the way that you express yourself with just no hesitation, no repetition is so impressive. And the fact that you have this double brain as you express it, which is such a good comparison to use, I imagine made you into such a great PA. Because that's what you Because there's oh, lo- so yeah. many tasks to keep so your brain occupied. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, honestly, I actually can't believe I was a PA for as long as I was. But it's like, yeah, it, it did at times. But like, I also see ADHD as a definite positive. And I think so many people have to realize like, you can have the ability if you want to to hyper focus on something and really really excel in it and like if I want to do something like the marathon for instance or I've done an MMA fight like if I set my mind on something I will give it my all and I will hyper focus on it and that is like a tool that people with ADHD do have so it's understanding like what positives come from the condition and what negatives come and just figuring out how to deal with them and once you sort of understand yourself you can use it as a powerful tool as well. How do you think it affected your Love Island experience? Because I read somewhere that you found Love Island 
quite relaxing because yeah. <laughs> there I were fewer it. distractions. Yeah, I just love it. Any TV show where they take away my phone, I'm just so happy. Like, I love not having to worry about anything, having to organise anything, having to manage anything. And I think my Love Island experience was really good. But I think that's also because no one else there has anything to do. So it doesn't matter if I come in with, like, some random distractive noise or roly-poly or whatever. Like, it's fine. <laughs> I'm also intrigued because I am a huge consumer of reality TV myself. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Why I wear it proudly because mm. I think it teaches us about the human condition if I yeah, want to be really pretentious, but I really do think that. Yeah. I always want to know from someone who's experienced what that's like from inside with multiple different versions of it. What do you think it taught you? I always said, like, people were like, oh, what if you go on and, like, people don't like you or it all sort of goes wrong? And I always looked at reality TV as, like, a good way to, like, define my own character. And I always said, look, if I go on there and I come across really well and people like me, then that's brilliant. And I do think that's what will happen. But if I was ever to sort of do or say something that the British public were like, you know, that that was out of order or you shouldn't act in that way, then what a great opportunity to learn something about myself and my own character and sort of adjust myself in accordance to that. And I think anyone going on reality TV, look, unless you're a really evil, really bad person, just shouldn't take things too seriously and should sort of take it as a way to really see themselves for who they truly are because no one really knows themselves until they watch themselves back. That's very courageous of you. Yeah. And to do it like multiple times as well. Yeah. Because I think the thing that strikes me when I interview people who've been on reality TV is that they have had to, from often from a, quite a young age, name their emotions. They've had to put their emotions and their feelings and their thought process into words yeah. for the cameras. Yeah. And actually, that's a form of enlightenment in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It can be really freeing. I just think it's so much fun. I think it's such a good way to communicate with people as well, like without any technology, like just to really like build bonds with each other. And I think that's why Love Island's so successful because you don't have any distractions and you really do just get to bond with individuals and get to know them and just do what normal humans were meant to do. Mm. What did you like about yourself and what did you dislike about yourself when you watched yourself back for the first time? I think I like my humour. I'm always part of the storyline because I'm quite a compassionate individual so I can always be there to help other people and sometimes I just think just shut up like if, <laughs> if I'm thinking about what I don't like about myself it's like if I'm talking too much and I just want to just crawl in the camera and just go just shut up <laughs> like put a pin in it to be fair it makes you a dream interviewee though yeah. so I'm very happy about that How does that idea that you get to know yourself better and if there is a flaw in your character that you perceive, you change it, how has that helped you now deal with online trolls? I've always had like a really thick skin. Like I think growing up, I came from like an East End family. I had loads of cousins. So I don't know, I was used to sort of taking things on the chin in terms of banter so I think that's what made me a decent candidate for reality TV because I think if you're someone who is sensitive, you absolutely should not do it. And I think we've seen in the past that people can crash and burn if they are of a sensitive nature. So I was always built quite well for it, but I've definitely had to accommodate to trolling and I've had to understand that actually 
all trolls are are lost individuals who have been hurt in some way in their past, who are insecure, who are going through some sort of a trauma and by watching you are triggered. They're triggered themselves. And I genuinely see anything that a troll says about me just as someone that I should feel sorry for, someone who's a lost on individual and someone who's expressing themselves in a way that doesn't make me look bad. It only makes them look bad. Mm. Do you engage with them or do you tend to leave? No, like who can be asked? Like (laughs) even when I was in the meeting in Downing Street the other day, we were talking about it and a couple of the girls like, you know, we've all snapped back before. And I'm like, I'm genuinely not. Like I don't want to engage in it. I can't be bothered. And like you fight in a losing battle. Like you're not arguing with a sane person. You can't argue with these people because whatever they say, whatever you say isn't going to make sense. And the more you comment to them, the more they thrive off it. And the worse their comments going to get. So what's the point? What do you think the hardest thing is about being a woman in the public eye? Probably the comments in the Daily Mail section. <laughs> like, honestly, they are horrific. I don't read them anymore. Like, I used to for a laugh back in the day. But, yeah, you can just come under a lot of scrutiny. And especially since everything's happened with me. Like, if I put on, like, a picture or a, a video in, like, a bikini or, like, underwear like I used to, like... I will get ripped to shreds. Like, how dare she say that she's a victim of image-based sexual abuse, but she's happy to be, like, pictured in her bikini or whatever. And it's, like, something like that, being in the public eye, can be really distressing because it makes me feel like I need to censor myself as a human being, whereas I never felt like that in the past. Mm -hmm. And, like, I'll I'll have, like, a picture and I think, oh, like, if I put that up, am I going to get judged? Or I'll put on an outfit now and I'll be more nervous to wear it because I'm scared that people are going to say, like, I deserved to be a victim of image-based sexual abuse. And it's ridiculous. But it's definitely something that I'm having to deal with quite a lot. What is your response to that ludicrous accusation? Like, I know it's ridiculous and I know it's wrong. So I, I don't really respond to it. But it definitely makes me like second guess my actions more whereas when I was younger I would have just gone out done what I wanted been carefree now I'm a bit like oh can I do this like like am I going to be judged for this yeah but I'm guessing sorry that your response would be the two things are completely disconnected they're they're not connected my response would be it comes down to consent yes everything's about consent like at the end of the day and I never consented to that footage being filmed or distributed but I do consent to a photo of myself in my underwear. And even if I was butt naked, mm-hmm. that doesn't matter. That's up to me. Yes. You know, it's not what I like to do. But if I wanted to, that is up to me. And that's why, like, it all does come down to consent. And I just done, like, the You Before Yes campaign with Superdrug. And it was all about just, like, teaching women about consent and how, yeah, that's completely what it boils down to. And I don't think I didn't notice the casual mention of Number 10 Downing Street there. <laughs> What's that like? What's it like walking into Number 10 Downing Street and knowing that you're there as one of the most high-profile, shape-shifting campaigners of our time, really? Like, what's that feel like? Just like, if you Googled, like, the definition of imposter syndrome, that's what it feels like. Like, it just feels... No, it feels amazing. Like, it feels like such an honour. And, like, I've always wanted to be someone that can help do good things in the world and can be like an activist for change it's something I've always written down in my manifestations that I want to help inspire people and make a positive difference in the world and it's like even though it came from a bad situation that is what I'm doing now so to walk into Downing Street was just such an honour and to be part of 
a change for the younger generation. It's just, yeah. Also, that, that's somewhere where they take your phone away, don't they? they do, so you probably yeah. really love it. You're like, oh, well, this reminds it. me of the Love Island villa. Yeah. <laughs> There's a few places in the world they've took my phone away. Chris Brown's house parties, the Love Island villa and Downing Street. Oh my I gosh. That. Okay. That <laughs> is genius. That's going to be the trailer for this episode. That's a very strange mix, isn't it? But that's where that's where we've been. Want to know about Chris Brown's parties, but well, maybe not for this podcast not episode. One. What was the Keir Starmer like? Keir Starmer's brilliant, brilliant, and look, he's really, really passionate about curbing violence against women and girls, and he really does believe the Labour Party are actively going to do that. So. You know, I keep my political views to myself, but anyone who's looking to make a change, willing to open up conversations and is standing next to Yvette Cooper is good for me. Would you ever go into politics? So many people say this. I think I'm better off as a campaigner. Like, I wouldn't want to stand by a specific party and end up getting into the really confrontational side of politics, to be honest. But I'll always be someone that does campaign in the future. And I would like to build a good relationship with any of the main parties within the UK. Alex Chalk was sort of saying this to me when we made the amendment that I've become this window for women in the British public to politics. So I've become like a voice for all of these women, which is really, really strange and really overwhelming, but is something that I can't deny. So because of what's happened to me, women reach out to me with all different sorts of subjects. They don't even just range from image-based sexual abuse now. They're just from all sorts to do with violence against women and girls. And he was like, we really want to have a strong relationship with you in the future so we can understand what's happening with women in general. And I'm like, I don't even know how this has happened, but it's now me that actually can read that, collate it, and now go on to voice it to government officials. Your second failure, and there's no easy seamless link here, because your second failure is failing to become a puppeteer. <laughs> Tell us that story, Georgia. <laughs> so I just wanted to throw a fun one in. I know, I'm honest. so glad you did. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, I think it's nice to lighten the mood. And the main reason I brought this one up is because like I'm such a strong believer that like the only true failure in life is failing to give something a go. If you try and do something that you've never done before, you'll either succeed or you won't do that well and you'll learn from it. You know, no one who is successful at anything was good the first time. Like you have to be bad at something to ever get good at something. So this time I was on my way back from Vegas and I was extremely hungover and a friend messages me and they're like, look, there's like this audition thing in LA and I'm like, oh, I'm in LA, it's exciting. And uh, they really want to meet you. They've seen you on Instagram. They think you're really funny and they think you'd be great for this role. They said it was like a Gen Z Sesame Street thing, right? So I'm obviously thinking it's just like a comedian thing. And I thought, do you know what? What's the worst that can happen? You throw enough things against the wall, something's going to stick. I'll go to the audition. You never know. I might walk out of there and like become something or I might meet someone who is like, you know, you're not for this, but further down the line, we think you'd be great for this production. So I walked in the audition and I sat down on a chair and it was almost like the old style X Factor. Mm -hmm. So it was four people sitting on desks and me on this chair with like a light on me. And they're like, hello, nice to meet you. And I'm like, hello. It was all very like overwhelming. And then they bring out this big puppet and they're like, so, you know, how long have you been puppeteering for? And I'm like, honestly, like I've never like that's a bit weird. Like, it's not for me, like, learning to puppet on a Wednesday. Like, I'm sure it is for some people, but it's just, I've never done it. I've never had my hand in a puppet ever. 
So they're like, you know, you're here now. Why don't you just give it a go? And I just thought, I'll go on then. And, and they stuck it on me. And I was like, all its head was all like that. And it was all like, it looked like it was going to fall apart. And they, I was like, what do you want me to do? And they were like, why don't you just sing a song? Oh so I started singing, hey, hey, baby. <laughs> With this puppet on, and I'd done literally a whole two minutes of this entire song with the puppet, like, dancing around with it. And then once I finished, the whole room didn't speak for at least 30 seconds. I didn't speak. They didn't speak. The puppet looked like it had a stroke. And you literally could have heard a, t a pin drop. And at the end of it, they just went... Well, we've never seen anything like that before. Um, thank you for your time. And I just walked out absolutely cracking up. And I just thought, that's the funniest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. I can't even believe I've done that. And I messaged them after to say, like, could I use the content for my TikTok? Because I, I failed yeah. so miserably. Yeah. And I think they said it would be bad for the brand. But the point is, like, just who cares? Do you know what I mean? Like, life is so short. And, like, one day when you get to the end of your lifespan, you're not going to care when you made a fool of yourself. In fact, you're going to wish you'd made a fool of yourself a little bit more. So, like, always just go for things. And, like, you'll have a funny story to tell if you do embarrass yourself. Exactly that. Yeah. Are you someone who believes in regret? Like, is there anything that you regret? Because that's often kind of connected, isn't it, that... Yeah, but no, no. I think all individuals always make decisions based on what they think is right, based on where they are at consciously. Like I think all human beings are on different scales of consciousness and they're, they're continually evolving and you can't blame a past version of yourself for anything because that was a different version of you, a different level of you doing what they thought was right at the time. So you can't regret anything because it's all just shaping you to be the person you are today. That's very wise. Thanks. How did you learn that? Or how did you... I just love self-help books. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favourite one? So I love The Magic by Rhonda Byrne. I can never say her name properly, but it, she done The Secret, didn't she? But The Magic is like a 28-day task. So for 28 days, you do a different task and it's all about embodying the power of gratitude and like just really giving out love and gratitude to human beings throughout your day. And it really changed the way that I hold myself in society and the way it changed the vibration that I give off completely. And every time I've ever done it the whole way through, I genuinely believe I manifested so much from implementing that. And it's only 10 minutes a day. Have you done conventional therapy? What, oh, therapy. just like normal therapy. Yeah, yeah I have. Yeah. I don't, like, I don't love it. Like, I always just, like, cry the whole way through. And I've been doing Havening recently. Have you heard of Havening? Yes, but I don't know what it is. It's to do with, like, cognitive therapy. And, and like, they'll basically make you think of certain things and do certain eye movements. And it's all about, like, the science of rewiring trauma patterns in your brain. So I do it with someone called Rob Brennan. And what he was basically explaining to me and... This is something that's been so important and so helpful in my life is like, say I was walking down the street and I got attacked by someone, viciously attacked. And just before it happened, a blue car drove past me, right? If I'm then walking down the street 10 years later and a blue car drives past me, I won't even notice the blue car. I won't even know it went past. But I will suddenly feel an overwhelming sense of fear and anxiety and it will make no sense to me because I'm having a great day. Could have just won the lottery. Suddenly, my whole persona will change and that is my brain reacting to a trauma pattern that has been installed in me to try and protect myself in the future. So Havening's all about trying to access what trauma patterns you do have and reposition how you look at them 
So like you'll look at it and just, you'll just rewrite what happened so your brain isn't so traumatized by it in the future. And it's really helped me. And weirdly, sorry to go into a spill. I said to my mum the other day, I've been going to the gym recently and I've been feeling great. But after everything first happened, like even like losing my friend and stuff, I think affected me. I couldn't go to the gym. I had overwhelming anxiety and I didn't allow myself to accept that it was because of the situation I'd gone through because I think I was just trying to tell myself that it hadn't affected me. And I just couldn't go in the gym. If I did, like I had this awful feeling of like everyone's looking at me. Like I literally would over-examine everything that I'd done because I thought the whole room was like staring at me. It was weird. And a lot of the time I'd feel like I had to leave or I just always feel really strange. And ever since I've been doing Havening, I've been going to the gym absolutely fine and I've really overcome my anxiety and I know I've come so far along the process of that and it's just gone. But I don't think it was until that feeling lifted that I've actually managed to acknowledge Mm. just how intense it was. When you mention your friend there, is this your friend Chenk? Is that also Chenk? Yeah, yeah. Like everyone calls him Senk, but it's Senk. Cenk, yeah. Okay. Tell us about him. He was just the most amazing, most empowering soul you've ever met. Just anyone who ever met him just absolutely loved him. He was my best friend from the age of 12. He literally lived behind me and like every day his little head would pop up like at my living room window with a new strange snack that he wanted to make me eat. And he basically went on to get leukemia at the age of 19. And it was such an awful experience for us. And he got chemo and he did overcome it. And he managed to fight it off until the age of 26. He went through all sorts of different treatments. He had chemo, he had CAR-T therapy, and he had a bone marrow transplant, all of which put so much time on his life. And his bone marrow transplant, may I just say, gave him five years. So I'm a big believer in signing up to DKMS and going on the um, donor register for that because it really does save lives. But yeah, unfortunately, we lost him at the age of 26. And I think losing him really made me just want to live my life so much more because he was such a carefree loving, grateful, happy individual. Anywhere he went, he made the best of every moment and he made people feel so good about themselves. And watching him, someone who appreciated life so much, lose their life makes me want to make the most of every moment more in mine the way he did. Mm. I'm so sorry, Georgia. Thank you. Did you get a chance to say goodbye? I did, yeah. He FaceTimed me when he was getting really ill. And to be honest, up until the day he died, he was in denial of the fact that he was going to die. And in a way, I think maybe that's better. But we were too, because he just told everyone he was going to be fine. And where he'd overcome it so many times, I think we just believed he was going to do it again. But he rang me a couple of weeks before he did die. And he was just really emotional. And he was just saying like, I love you so much, Georgia. And I just, I knew he was saying goodbye to me. And I think that was the first time I realised that we was actually going to lose him. But I'm still so grateful to have got that opportunity. And before he passed, we raised like £60,000 in his name to help go towards treatments for himself. But obviously he passed before they had the ability to do that. So now his family have opened something called the Fari Foundation with the money that they raise. And they're going on to help children who have teenage cancer, basically just live a nicer life in between. Because, you know, I tell you what, that boy might have been sick, but anytime he had the chance, he really did live his life in between. And I think for a lot of people out there that are suffering with leukemia, 
hopefully they will overcome it. But for some of them, you don't know how long their lifespan is going to be. And it's so important that they get to do the things they want to do and enjoy life and have the money and the ability to really do that in between their treatments, I think. I'm really glad we've spoken about him today. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Seven months after Jake McLean, your on-off boyfriend, died in a car accident. Yeah. And... I wonder, you mentioned that you are spiritual. Yeah. Has that helped you come to terms with those two very shocking and very different deaths? Do you believe that in some capacity their souls are still around you? Yeah, like I like to believe that souls come to this earth with a purpose and sometimes it doesn't make sense. But I believe we live multiple lives. I know it sounds silly. And I think each time we come to this Earth to learn a different lesson or to teach other people a different lesson and sometimes things can be unfair and they can't make sense but in the grand scheme of things they do and I definitely feel Jake's energy and Jenk's energy and I can really differentiate between the two and like sometimes I don't know if it's just my brain but I can just sense things that they would say or do or Jake was just such a fun loving amazing individual and he used to make me feel so empowered and so good about myself and like sometimes I will if I'm feeling a bit nervous or I'm walking into a situation where I'm feeling uneasy or anxious I'll like call on the energy of like how I feel when I'm with him and I would feel safe I'd feel empowered I'd feel a better version of myself and I can sort of tap into that energy now he's gone it's really weird and almost like call it on from him and I'll never fully make sense of why them two had to have such a huge impact on my life and depart it so quickly I don't think it will ever fully make sense but I've definitely learned to live with it and I've definitely learned to use their memory as a tool to make myself stronger more grateful and just a better version of myself like I do it for them now as well like I do it for them did you call on that energy during the court case yeah definitely I definitely did with Jenk as well. Like, Jenk and Jake were very vocal about their feelings towards Stephen Bear. And they were just absolutely, like, disgusted by what he'd done. Especially Jake being someone that was my only long-term partner. Like, he reached out to me, like, just after it happened. And he was just horrified because he knew that I wasn't someone that would even take pictures or videos in a relationship that I feel comfortable in because I've just always been scared of, like, the cloud. Like, I've just always been a paranoid person. It's something I wouldn't even have done with him. So... It was really refreshing getting to speak to him about it before he passed because I knew he was the one person in the world that actually knew me and knew that I 100% would never have allowed myself to be in a situation like that. And I definitely called on the energy of strength from both of them when I went in there. And I know they would have been so proud of me. But there was a point where I wasn't sure if I would even be able to walk into that courtroom because it was so soon after Jake's death. But we got there. You did it. Yeah. Your third and final failure relates to that. And it's such an interesting one. And you explained it so eloquently in this email to me. And it's failing to avoid being part of the porn industry. Mm. Tell us about that. So for me, I've got friends that are on subscription platforms that are in the porn industry. And I 100% do not judge them. Like I think each to your own, like whatever makes you happy. But 
I've always had like this carrot dangled in front of me consistently of if you go on these subscription platforms, you could be making 80 grand a month. Look at all of these other girls with less followers than you. Look at the money they're making. All they're doing is just, they're only in their underwear. Do you know what I mean? And, and a lot of my friends who are on there, they are literally in like bikinis, like slapping their bum and water on the side of the pool or something like that. Something that doesn't seem really that big of a deal when you're making enough to literally like buy a property every six months, right? But it was not my path. It wasn't what sat right with me. It wasn't what feels right for me. I never wanted to receive money for someone getting sexual gratification. And I always wanted to be a presenter and be taken seriously. So no matter how tempting it's been looking at those figures and then looking at my bank account <laughs> to not do that and not take those steps. I've always just held myself back from that and thought, no, I'm going to look at the bigger picture. I'm going to be strong and I'm going to look at my 10-year plan of like, not just the businesswoman I want to be, but the wife I want to be and the mother I want to be one day. And by getting put on these subscription platforms without my permission and not just those on porn platforms across the UK that right was taken away from me. And I've now been put in this position where I have a stigma across my name and certain brands and certain companies do not want to work with me and never will do because I am officially part of the porn industry. And that was never my right. So I've now not only got the stigma, but I still don't have the money. So I ended up in like some position in between where it just felt so unfair and like yeah that decision was taken away from me because you lost work didn't you when all yeah. of this happened with Stephen Bear how did that come about you just suddenly what were you doing for for work and why did you lose it so I was doing loads of brand deals I was really quite successful on Instagram I was working with lots of large underwear brands and just I was making a good amount of money to be honest in the lead up to it and all of them were on different bases, but the majority of them weren't on ongoing contracts. So they would just come in as they did. But I had great relationships. And as soon as it happened, like, I think we actually had to print out like the difference in my account for the sake of like my civil proceedings and stuff like that. Like, if you looked at the earnings I was making before, and after the situation arose, it literally dropped dramatically. Almost every single brand dropped me, apart from Woo Woo, who came in to make me their brand ambassador. Shout out to them, because I don't know how I would have got through that year without them. But every single brand that used to work with me did drop me, and none of them officially said it's because of the tape. But my agent at the time had conversations with brands that she had good relationships with, and they sort of notified her that because of the stigma around me, especially at the time where... I didn't have my voice. So for all they knew, I could well have been involved in this video. Like they don't want to invest in someone who a couple of months down the line is going to come out as, you know, a liar or someone who was making sex tapes. Like it was just too much of a red flag for them. And like there's so many other influencers who are exactly the same as me, who have just come off Love Island, who have the same amount of followers, who do the same thing, who aren't a flight risk. So why bother going with me? And yeah, it was hard as well because so many of them obviously wouldn't vocally admit that that was why because they didn't want to be involved with someone who also dropped a victim. But yeah, if you look at it from that two years, absolutely everyone dropped me apart from Woo Woo. And even now I'm still not back on track with half the brands that I used to be. Are you angry? I mean, there were times where I was so angry, yeah. Like now I'm not. 
because now I honestly just, I feel great. And I feel like the universe is blessing me with so many opportunities in completely different sectors. And, and I'm succeeding in ways I never dreamed possible. But over them two years, there was times where I just felt like it was just so unfair. And I couldn't believe that people would act that way. But then also I'm not allowed to talk about it. So I can't exactly even get on my Instagram and be like, you know. Yeah. Why none of you working with me? <laughs> yes. And also it's all happening during the pandemic when yeah. the entire world felt unhinged in yeah. so many ways. And so mm. it's but strangely during the pandemic, influencers were doing quite well because suddenly people had nothing better to do than buy products or look at our pages. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I completely get what you do. And there'll be some people listening to this podcast who are like, I don't really understand the world of influencing. Mm. And it seems really superficial and like not a proper job. Mm. And I'm sure you're sick of hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> but what do, what would you say to people about that opinion? That is such a troll comment. Like, get a job. Oh, funnily enough, I've got one. I've been working since 6am. Yeah. I would just say that it's actually a lot harder than anyone would think. And it's not just about like, I don't know, taking a bit of money to go promote shampoo. Like you actually have to actively engage with your followers on an ongoing basis or you will become irrelevant. And you have to remember that your followers aren't a number. They're an individual who are investing in you, who are investing their time in you and their trust in you. Like it's an ongoing job. Like you have to be constantly thinking of new content. You have to be constantly thinking of what are they going to like to see. And then you go out and you have to do photo shoots. You have to do intense amounts of research across all different platforms to see what's trending, to see what's going to do well. I then have to listen to algorithm podcasts and YouTubes all the time about how the algorithm's changing. Like I have to study like the changes within Instagram, TikTok, what I can use to implement it and make my following stay strong. And if I don't do that, then my engagement just drops and you do become irrelevant. So it, it's an ongoing thing, but it's also something that comes with a large responsibility. And I think when you do get to a level of having like millions of followers, you have to remember that they are humans and they are people that care about you, invest in you and make sure you're promoting the right things to them and you're doing right by them as they're doing right by you. And I think it starts with knowing yourself, which yeah. is a lifelong process actually to yeah. be able to bring that authenticity to bear to everything that you do it's a lot of pressure it's a lot of pressure but also I think Instagram and social media in general are going down quite a nice route where people are really being praised for their authenticity and their flaws and like people are going for more relatable content now like they don't want to see this supermodel looking amazing on a sunbed somewhere in Mykonos like they want to see someone that reminds them of them and makes them feel good about their traits and their personality defects and their imperfections because we've all got them do you know what I mean and suddenly social media is actually doing quite a good job of highlighting that nobody's perfect and you know if they were then well, they probably spent a lot of money getting there yeah they probably airbrushed <laughs> themselves <laughs> yeah. just going back to havening for a moment that idea of being triggered by the blue car and not yeah. understanding that that's what's triggering you I wonder in that context how you feel about cameras mm. because cameras have been so much part of your professional life, mm. whether it be on reality TV or as an influencer, we're filming this podcast and cameras have been part of the most traumatic part of your life. I know it sounds weird, but it depends on my relationship with the camera and that comes down to consent as well because it's funny you bring that up, but it was years ago, I was in LA a bit after this had happened and it was just such a silly thing, but like we come back to go get in our car and our car had been blocked in, me and the girls. 
this guy, we was like basically arguing with the guy to like move his car or whatever they were anyway. And it was getting a bit of an intense heated argument. We wanted to get out. He was trying to prove a point. And then he started filming us in the argument. And I really was triggered. Like I had like close to a panic attack, I would say. And I really, really just like became overwhelmed with emotion. I was crying. I couldn't catch my breath. And I like, I didn't know the girls that well either, but I think they knew what I'd been through. Then the guy eventually let us out and we had to go down the road and I had to really be calmed down. And like, everyone was like, God, like, like, I know the argument was sort of getting a bit intense. But, like, why did you react in such a overwhelming way? And I was like, I actually don't know. Like, I was a bit embarrassed about how I'd completely lost my shit, to be honest. Can I swear? Yes. Oh, my God. I encourage swearing. (laughs) how I completely and utterly just lost my shit. It wasn't until I got home and we calmed down and I processed what had happened that I realised that because the guy filmed me without my permission, it really triggered a very overwhelming response within me. But then, like, I can be here on a camera and be fine. I can be on a television camera and be fine. But there's obviously something inside of me, a bit like that blue car thing, where if someone films me where I don't feel like they should be, it causes a really intense emotional reaction within my nervous system, something that I couldn't even control. And it's not happened again since. And it was right after the situation had happened. So I like to think that wouldn't happen again. But it was a strange incident and it was definitely a trauma response. Yeah. If you could go back in time and speak to that Georgia of three years ago, what would you say to her? I do it all the time. (laughs) I like really believe in like past, they do like past life regression meditations. I saw something really weird on Instagram the other day and it really freaked me out. And it was like, it basically said, what if every time that you had a feeling or a glimmer of hope that everything was going to be okay, it's really your future self visiting you to tell you it's going to be okay. And that really tripped me out because I actually always do it. And I always go back to her and I just tell her that she has absolutely nothing to be ashamed of and that everything's going to be okay. And that one day everything that's happening to you right now is going to make sense and you are going to be so proud of yourself and you're going to get the last laugh. So just finish that glass of wine, go through that last box of tissues and do what you've got to do now to get through it because trust me, it's all going to work out for you. And is that the same advice that you would give anyone listening to this who is potentially experiencing something that you went through or similar sort of experience and they're not sure what to do and they don't know if they're brave enough to tell anyone what's happened to them? Yeah, just look, you've got absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. And you've also got every right to keep the situation to yourself if that's what you feel was best. But I genuinely think it's the discussions that I've had with other people, whether that be a friend, whether that be a a professional at the RP helpline or, you know, whether that just be on a forum for other victims of image-based sexual abuse. It's really helped me understand that I've got nothing to be ashamed of and process my feelings and look at it in a different way. And if you don't have those conversations, you can really reframe what happens in your mind and you can blame yourself and you can beat yourself up about it. And it's just so important to have these discussions with someone, just one trusted friend or one individual. And sometimes there are also steps you're going to have to take to prevent this image going any further or it's circulating anymore and absolutely like the best thing to do is reach out to someone for help and the revenge porn helpline are absolutely amazing they're government funded they're wizards in my opinion and they've managed to get down content for me that completely I never thought I would be able to get down from platforms that have just ignored me in every way shape or form they've managed to get through to them and they've also managed to 
just give me so much help on processing everything. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. That's a great resource. Thank you for sharing it. Final question, Georgia Harrison. Your book is called Taking Back My Power. How did that phrase first come to you? We was going back and forth about it in the WhatsApp group, actually. And a guy called Oscar, who's working on the production of my book, suggested it. It was taking back your power, I think is what he suggested. And then... I was just like, I absolutely love it. Like, I feel like this whole journey has been about resilience and taking back your power and using your voice and being a strong person. And then we didn't want it to become too self-helpy. So then we were like, do you know what? It's taking back my power. And literally that is what this whole journey has been about. It's been about taking back my power and realising that this is my body, my consent, and absolutely that the power is in my hands and it is for any individual out there listening or reading. Georgia Harrison, thank you for bringing your powerful self to the How to Fail (laughs) studio. I am so grateful to you for everything you've done and for coming on How to Fail. Thank you. It's just, it's been such an honour to be on in it. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently it helps other people know that we exist.